Hello, and welcome back to the Clinical Update podcast from MIMS Learning. I'm Pat Anderson, editor of MIMS Learning, and I'm excited that we're starting season two already and we've got lots of good stuff in store for you. If you missed season one, don't worry, you can listen to it on your favourite app or on the MIMS Learning website. This season, we aim to raise your awareness of the important clinical topics that our expert writers and speakers have been covering in our educational modules and events. Along with my fellow medical editors, we'll bring you key learning points from our modules and we'll interview specialists who draw on their lived experience of clinical practice to advise you on how you can best support and treat your patients. In this episode, Sangeeta Krishnan and I will look at the tricky problem of topical steroid withdrawal syndrome. Dawn Powell will interview sleep and ventilation expert Dr Swapna Mandal. And between us, we'll cover three key points from the direct study of low-calorie diets for diabetes. So let's get the ball rolling. First of all, I'll hand over to you, Sangeeta, for our featured learning module from the MIMS Learning website. Hi, Pat. So for this episode, I wanted to talk about topical corticosteroids. Topical corticosteroids are used to treat inflammatory skin conditions like dermatitis and psoriasis, but they're also associated with side effects like blisters, hypopigmentation, and an increased risk of skin infections. Infants are particularly prone to side effects. There is also the possibility of a withdrawal reaction that can occur in patients once they've stopped using them. This is known as topical steroid withdrawal or TSW. I know steroids are commonly prescribed, so could anyone on steroids experience withdrawal? You'll be relieved to hear that the answer to this is no. You do not experience withdrawal when this medication is used correctly in the way that it was prescribed. TSW tends to occur after prolonged overuse. It's more likely in patients with an underlying atopy. It's also more likely if the steroid is used more frequently than prescribed. If used correctly, steroids do not cause withdrawal. So why do healthcare professionals need to know about TSW? A case report of a patient with this condition, written by Ms. Julia Olayemi and Dr. Anthony Bewley, shows how significant TSW is and how much impact it can have on one person. A woman in her 20s presented with a severe eczema flare. She had a history of eczema and hay fever since childhood, managed conservatively. She had an eczema flare behind the knees and flexor compartments of the elbows as a child, resolved using hydrocortisone. She had two more flares in her teenage years, managed with hydrocortisone and Umovate. The present flare started two years ago and she described it as being more aggressive. There were itchy erythema ashes around her knees, elbows and lips. This is when she used corticosteroid creams she already had at home, which didn't work. She kept seeking out help and being prescribed more topical steroid creams of increasing doses and potencies over a 12-month period. To get relief, she decided to apply more of the cream she was prescribed last, and that's Dermavate. The eczema spread led to burning, shedding, exfoliation and oozing and bleeding skin. So that must have had a significant impact on her mental health. You're right, it did. She became socially withdrawn, developed anxiety and felt helpless. She experienced insomnia, weight loss and her skin became hypersensitive. She described her life as a living hell. She learned about TSW on social media and felt like her symptoms matched what was described so went back to the clinic. 
a thorough dermatological exam was performed using a dermoscope. The skin was hypersensitive and dry and there was extensive erythema, eczema and excoriations. At this point, the option of oral prednisolone was discussed but the patient refused any more steroids. So she was given a sedating antihistamine, an emollient and a two-week course of 0.1% tacrolimus ointment. Though she had flares at months two and three, she refused any more steroids. So during this process, which sounds pretty challenging for her, did she get any further support? Yeah, she was referred to talking therapies for psychological support. From month four, the patient noticed that her symptoms stopped getting worse. The healing process was gradual. How can a clinician identify TSW? The common symptoms of TSW are a rebound or a flare of the underlying skin disease that is worse than the original disease presentation, followed by red skin and associated with sensations of stinging or burning. For a full list of symptoms, management and treatment options, as well as challenges and pitfalls encountered in such cases, do visit MEMS Learning for the full module on topical steroid withdrawal. Thanks very much, Sangeeta, for shedding light on this important syndrome. The sheer amount and breadth of dermatology education on MIMS Learning is one of our strengths. So if you're interested in learning more about skin conditions and their treatments, do come our way to see what we have. We have 155 dermatology learning modules at the last count, so you should be able to find something that's right for you. In our next segment, we hand over to Dawn for an interview with consultant respiratory physician, Dr. Swapna Mandal. Dr. Mandel is our clinical advisor on respiratory medicine, and she'll be speaking to Dawn about one of her particular areas of expertise, which is obstructive sleep apnea. Thanks for the introduction, Pat. Here with me today is Dr. Swapna Mandel, as well as being the MIMS Learning Respiratory Clinical Advisor. She is also a consultant respiratory physician at Royal Free London and has a sub-specialist interest in sleep and ventilation. Each month for our respiratory research briefings, she reviews and provides expert commentary on the latest research in respiratory medicine. I will be speaking to her today about obstructive sleep apnea. Welcome to the podcast, Swapna. Thanks for inviting me, Dawn. The name obstructive sleep apnea implies that obstruction is disrupting breathing during sleep. But what actually is the medical definition of OSA? So obstructive sleep apnea is a condition where patients have pauses in their breathing overnight. And that is medically defined as having apneas and hypopneas. You can define that further. So an apnea is where you have complete cessation of airflow for greater than 10 seconds and your oxygen levels may or may not drop with that. And a hypopnea is a reduction in airflow associated with a drop in your oxygen levels. So that's the actual condition, but we take it one step further and say patients have obstructive sleep apnea syndrome, which means that they have symptoms to go along with that. It's important to understand how obstructive sleep apnea works. And essentially, when we all go to sleep, we know that our muscles relax, including the muscles in our neck and upper airway and that causes some narrowing of the upper airway but in patients with obstructive sleep apnea that narrowing is far more significant which stops the airflow from occurring. Okay and am I right in thinking it's typically people who live with obesity who experience OSA? 
Yep, so there are lots of risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea and weight is certainly one of them. We know that with increasing weight that your sleep apnea can become worse, but there are also other groups at risk. So for example, it's more common in men. It becomes more common the older you get. We have to take into account a variety of things when we're assessing patients. Okay. I think by definition, OSA is something that happens during sleep. I mean, how... If it's happening during sleep, do you know that something is wrong? That's a really good question. And the answer is that often people don't know what's going on. And actually, it's their bed partners that are nudging them to seek help. So often I see patients where it's the partner who says, oh, they snore terribly. That's one of the commonest complaints from a bed partner. Or they've actually seen a patient have a pause in their breathing. And that's obviously concerned them. And you often hear, oh, I had to move them during sleep in order for them to wake up. So it's often not the patient that seeks help directly. However, if a patient does have symptoms, that will lead them to seeking help. And those kinds of symptoms are very variable. And the symptoms we often hear from patients is that they feel fatigued during the day. But more importantly, we have patients falling asleep during the day and in situations that they wouldn't normally fall asleep in, such as talking to somebody or sitting and reading a newspaper, for example. So that is unusual. There may be other more subtle symptoms, such as needing to go to the toilet frequently at night, waking up in the middle of the night. And that's sometimes patients waking up and not knowing why. Sometimes patients say that they're waking up and gasping for air. Some patients complain of a headache in the mornings that tends to get better as the day goes along. We do have a lot of patients that say that they get brain fog or some difficulties with their memory. So there's a wide range of symptoms that really can result from obstructive sleep apnea, but I guess a lot of people may not think of OSA being the cause of those symptoms. Okay, I mean, I suppose for a a patient themselves, they might not know about it anyway. So reality is that whether it's their partner telling them you've got to go and see someone, you're really snoring, or it's the patient experiencing symptoms that are worrying them, and they'll go and see someone. But the that healthcare professional they're going to see is very likely to be the GP. That's going to be their first point of contact. If a GP sees someone and they're talking about symptoms that you think that raises a suspicion of OSA, what should the GP do to sort of further investigate that at their end? Yeah, it's really difficult for GPs because, as I said, often the the complaint may not be from the patient, it may be from the bed partner, or it's quite vague, I'm tired. And and we know that tiredness can be caused by a multitude of medical conditions. But if there are other symptoms that are making a GP think, oh, actually, this might be sleep apnea, there are a couple of screening tools that we can use to help assess that. So there's something called the Stop Bang screening tool, which looks at eight factors that put you at risk of having obstructive sleep apnea so things like snoring your BMI your gender and age etc and if you score highly on those factors then you are considered high risk for obstructive sleep apnea and then there's also a tool called the Epworth sleepiness score which is a score or a measure of sleepiness during the day which again can be used to assess the degree of sleepiness and those tools can be used to help triage patients into the likelihood of having obstructive sleep apnea and whether they should be seen in secondary care. Okay, because I was going to go on to that. So, so the GP sort of assesses their sleepiness and think, okay, this might be something. And then that's when they would send them to a sleep expert or a spiritual consult, because it, I presume it's going to be someone working respiratory or maybe ENT or somebody. 
Correct. So mostly it is respiratory clinicians that look after these patients, but there are other clinicians such as, as you pointed out, ENT. And actually there's probably a bigger move to work as a multidisciplinary team because as research in this field grows, we're hopefully going to find more treatment options for these patients. But it is commonly a respiratory clinician. Okay. So a GP's referred somebody to you thinking, I think this person is OSA. What would you do as a respiratory consultant? So obviously important to assess the patient and their symptoms, but the crux of getting the diagnosis is doing a test and that that test is a sleep study. Sleep studies come in different formats and we're really lucky and it's an exciting time to be in respiratory sleep medicine as the field is moving and, and diagnostics are becoming smaller and easier. So sleep studies can vary from being an inpatient in a hospital and having full polysomnography. So that is wearing electrodes on the head, bands around the chest and tummy, nasal cannulae, a pulse oximeter, and sometimes some EMG electrodes to measure movement in the legs, to studies that can be done at home. So a a much more pared down version of that, something called respiratory polygraphy, where you just have the bands across the tummy and chest, the pulse oximeter and the nasal cannulae. But there are also exciting technologies that can be used where you just put a little device on the bottom of your neck or wear something that looks like a smartwatch with a finger probe. But all of these studies give us similar information, which is about whether or not there are pauses in breathing or whether there are pauses in the airflow and what the oxygen levels are doing overnight. Okay, so you've done all that and it does sort of confirms or shows us a good indication of OSA. I mean, obviously, I'm going to talk about management in a minute, but I would imagine there's two caveats to lifestyle. First of all, you're going to be looking at the risk factors. So, you know, if they're smoking, encourage them to stop smoking. If they're overweight, encourage them to lose weight. So is that just general lifestyle advice at this point, trying to reduce the risk factors that may have produced the OSA or led to the OSA? Yeah, absolutely. And that has been sort of... uh made part of the NICE guidance that came out a couple of years ago. So absolutely all clinicians looking after patients who have obstructive sleep apnea should be talking to patients about lifestyle measures. So as you say, stopping smoking is really important. Weight loss and weight management is important. Exercise has also been shown to help with obstructive sleep apnea. There's also other things that we need to think about. So things like reducing alcohol intake. So we know that If you drink alcohol and you're somebody that already has sleep apnea or is prone to having sleep apnea, then the alcohol will make that worse. And similarly, the use of drugs such as benzodiazepines will also worsen sleep apnea. So we talk to patients about all of those factors in terms of trying to improve outcomes. And I suppose if you're talking about benzodiapines, you're going to be having to say to that GP or the doctor who's prescribed that, this person now has this, can you give them something else? Do they need to be on this? Like you, you'll have to be contacting your colleagues if there's medication that's affecting this. Yeah, absolutely. So understandably, a lot of patients may go to their GP with, you know, I'm not sleeping properly, which is why I feel tired in the day and sometimes therefore prescribed things like benzodiazepines. Hopefully by giving patients the right treatment to the need for drugs like benzodiazepines is removed. But that can be quite a difficult process because obviously the patient may feel that the benzodiazepines have traditionally helped. So so yes, it's, it's important we consider it and we do it in a way that we're not causing distress or harm to the patient. Okay. You had mentioned before that sleepiness is an issue and falling asleep. And the big thing with that is obviously driving. If they drive, and we've seen in the news over several years how dangerous someone falling asleep at the wheel can be. So 
what do they need to do if they've got OSA and they've got sleepiness? What do they need to do about driving? That's a really important question. And it's really important to then think about obstructive sleep apnea, the condition, and obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. So that obstructive sleep apnea syndrome is where they have the symptom of excessive daytime sleepiness. And the DVLA guidance is that if you have OSA without sleepiness, then you don't need to tell the DVLA and you don't need to stop driving, you just carry on. But for patients who are deemed to have excessive daytime sleepiness, that's where a little bit more thought needs to be put into how this is done. And there's very clear guidance. But essentially, if you're being investigated for obstructive sleep apnea and you have sleepiness or you have mild obstructive sleep apnea, you shouldn't drive until your sleepiness improves. You don't need to tell the DVLA unless you cannot control the symptoms of sleepiness within three months. If you have moderate or severe obstructive sleep apnea with excessive sleepiness, again, you shouldn't drive until the sleepiness has been controlled, but you should also tell the DVLA. So it's slightly different for the each degree of severity of OSA and also whether or not there is sleepiness involved in that. That's the key. I know because of patient confidentiality, you've got to balance against that. But if you say knew of a patient who had excessive sleepiness that wasn't really under control and they hadn't told the DVLA and they were still driving, would you then be obligated to inform the DVLA? Yeah, so that that is a really difficult one. And obviously, we never want to break confidentiality if that's possible. I have to say, in most cases, discussions, and sometimes that's multiple discussions with a patient to explain why it's important that they report if they need to report, usually results in the right action being taken, sometimes involving their general practitioner is also helpful. I've not personally had to do that. Obviously, the advice is that if the clinician is concerned about the patient putting other people at risk or risking the safety of others, then then we do have a duty to inform the appropriate authorities. Okay, so you don't really want to, but if that's the only option, then it's kind of that's what you've got to do. And just talking about reducing sleepiness, I know it's a continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP. That's the first line treatment. I mean, is it, from my understanding, it's like it works because it's helping them breathe at night and that would reduce sleepiness because they're not stopping breathing. So exactly. So patients who have obstructive sleep apnea are having these pauses in their breathing. And every time they have a pause, it means that they're they are probably going from a state of deeper sleep to lighter sleep. So their, their sleep quality is not as good as it can be. And therefore, by treating that using CPAP, we restore their sleep quality and improve their symptoms, particularly that of excessive sleepiness. So CPAP works by keeping the airway open. So I mentioned earlier that patients with OSA have an upper airway that narrows significantly and the CPAP works by keeping that open. And essentially, patients wear a a mask that goes either over the nose or over the nose and mouth, which is attached to some tubing and then a a little box, which is a a blower or a fan for want of a, a better description. And that creates pressure to help splint the airway open. Okay. And just like wearing a mask at night, that can be, I mean, imagine that's very onerous. And so that's going to be difficult to adhere to. Is there anything clinicians can do to make that easier or just adherence easier for the patient? So again, thankfully, we've had a lot more masks introduced onto the market so there are better options now for patients of 
how intrusive the mask can be and, and we can assess the patients to ensure that it's the right mask for them. We can also help by altering settings on the CPAP device to make it more comfortable for them and allow them to fall asleep before the pressure on the device increases, for example. And I think once patients get used to it and they see the benefits, they actually see how useful it is to use the CPAP device and how they feel afterwards. And actually, the majority of patients will say that they can't live without their device. They they need to wear it every night. They don't want to go without it. But there are some people that struggle and we keep persisting with them, as I said, trying different masks, trying different techniques to help them acclimatise to it and settings on, on the device. For people that really can't tolerate using CPAP, nice guidance is now that we can offer something called a mandibular advancement device instead of CPAP. And essentially a mandibular advancement device is a a mouth guard or a a dental uh, appliance that they wear, which helps bring the jaw forward and again does a similar job of trying to open up the upper airway. What is slightly difficult is that in those with severe obstructive sleep apnea, a mandibular advancement device may not fully treat the sleep apnea. Well, thank you. This is really informative. Just so finally, so let's assume they've been given the CPAP mask and they're adhering to it. What is their prognosis? I mean, are they going to get worse? Is it a life-threatening condition? Is this, even like even if treated, is this going to cause them problems? Data suggests that if patients can use their CPAP effectively, that actually the risks surrounding OSA, so things like cardiovascular risk, is reduced. That it's difficult because all of the trials are very, very different, but we've within the sleep and ventilation community feel that if patients are using the device, they're reducing their risk of other comorbidities. Does the nature of the disease change? I think that's very dependent. I think we've all seen that some patients do become a little bit worse and that may be related to increasing weight, which might be difficult to change. We may need to reassess patients to see if they need a change in a device or if they've developed ventilatory failure and therefore need ventilation rather than CPAP therapy. But really, if patients are using their CPAP devices, the data suggests that they're reducing their risk of as I said, comorbidities such as cardiovascular disease, but also improving their life expectancy compared to if they weren't using the device at all. So actually, it's important treatment and they absolutely should use it. Okay, so we've got effective treatment for OSA. And the really key is supporting them to adhere to that treatment, because if they adhere to that treatment, then that outlook is much better. Correct, yeah. Okay. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for your time today, Swapna. Thank you. And this really fantastic interview. For more information on OSA, do check out our respiratory content. Swapner has done fantastic research briefings where she's touched upon OSA and lots of other respiratory conditions. But we also have several modules looking at OSA and we have a dedicated learning plan overseen by Swapner on sleep and ventilation. So we've got a lot of good content on the MIMS learning platform. Thanks very much, Dawn and Dr Mandal. We're back for a discussion of a study that has had a lot of attention recently in the medical world and in the news more generally. This is something we've been discussing as a team quite a bit. It's the latest from the direct study on people with diabetes, which is familiar to many because of its original findings in 2018. The five-year findings from the study are now out, so between the three of us, we aim to bring you three key points on direct that we hope are easy to remember and can inform your clinical practice. So, Dawn, you're going first, I believe. What's your key point about direct? 
that weight loss can lead to remission of type 2 diabetes. So, indirect, 306 people with type 2 diabetes were randomised to a weight management programme or to standard care with 149 people in each group. The weight management programme involved a soups and shakes food replacement diet, which was about 853 calories per day for three to five months, followed by stepped food reintroduction for two to eight weeks and structured support for long-term weight loss maintenance. After about 12 months, 36 of the people in the intervention group had a weight loss of at least 15 kilograms or more versus no one in the standard care group. And this difference was statistically significant. Importantly, 68 people in the intervention group were in remission of type 2 diabetes at 12 months. So that's not on any diabetes medication versus only six people in the standard care group. Again, this difference was statistically significant. The remission was clearly linked with weight loss, with 31 of the 36 people who had a weight loss of at least 15 kilograms or more achieving remission. By contrast, none of the 76 people who had gained weight during the first year of the study achieved remission. So that's point one. As you may remember, the original direct research showed a clear link between weight loss and type 2 diabetes remission. So leading on from that, what's our next key point for 2023 now that the five-year results are out? The five-year results from direct suggested that remission can be sustained, but the data need to be looked at closely. The researchers of direct were funded to carry out an extension study that went on for an additional three years. We know that roughly 36% of patients were in remission at two years in the original trial. At this stage, data from 85 people who participated in the original trial were available. The average five-year weight loss in this group of patients was 6.1 kilograms. Of the 85, 48 were in remission at the start of the three-year study and only 23% or a mere 11 participants remained in remission at the end of five years with an average weight loss of 8.9 kilograms. If looking at all 85 patients in the intervention group, just under 13% of patients who received the low-calorie diet and support intervention achieved remission. Though this is a small number, compared to the control group, these values are significant because at five years, the control group had a five-year weight loss of 3.6 kilograms and remission achieved in only 3.4% of patients. So regardless of whether remission was achieved by the people in the extension intervention group, they had greater improvements in blood pressure and blood glucose levels relative to the control group. Thanks, Angita, for that deep dive into the extension data. So our second key point is that in spite of apparently encouraging data reported in the news from the five-year extension of the direct study, remission is probably not sustainable for most patients. However, the fact that it is sustainable for a minority is enough to have encouraged the NHS to expand a pilot programme offering the meal replacement diet. So my key point is about what's happening with that. And so following the original direct findings, NHS England launched a pilot programme in some areas consisting of 12 weeks of the soup and shakes diet for people with type 2 diabetes with support and monitoring for 12 months. And then now that the five-year data has come out, the plan is to expand the programme to every part of England by March 2024. 
And to be referred for the programme, people have to be over the age of 18, have a body mass index or BMI of 30 or more, adjusted to over 27.5 for people from black, Asian and ethnic minority backgrounds. And they have to have a diagnosis of diabetes, notably type 1 or type 2, hypertension or both. So the programme does accept referrals for people with type 1 diabetes, but of course type 1 diabetes is not related to weight and remission is not possible. Direct enrolled people who've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes within the last six years. So limited data are available for, as to whether weight loss associated remission can be achieved in people who've had type 2 for longer than six years. On MIMS Learning, we have a learning module that provides details of a talk given by Professor Roy Taylor at the Diabetes Professional Care Conference in 2022. And he explained that the longer somebody's had type 2 diabetes, the less likely it is that they may be able to go into remission, even if they do lose weight. That said, weight loss is still obviously going to promote better outcomes, not least the blood glucose and blood pressure improvements that Sangeet is referred to. So to conclude, the three key points that we can offer you are one, weight loss can lead to remission of type 2 diabetes. Two, the five-year results from the direct study should be examined closely as the number of patients actually achieving sustained remission was small. And three, the NHS is serving out the soups and shakes diet in England and this should bring benefits even if it's not possible for most people to achieve sustained remission. Ultimately, only time will tell with the results, but we'll collectively as a nation have to hope for the best. So thank you very much for joining me, Dawn and Sangeeta, for these three key points. We look forward very much to seeing you next time for episode two of season two. And don't forget, you can access the MIMS Learning website to find the learning we've mentioned, to complete and log your learning, and to discover lots more important and relevant topics to study. Thank you.